my gosh. I want to fall off my chair right now. (laughs) I'm done. Oh my gosh, the story is like getting better and better and better. Like... This is Hebrew Hits, presented by JTribeRadio.com. I'm your host, Malia, and I sit down with people who live by the motto, it's what you do with what you have that makes a difference. Welcome to Hebrew Hits. I'm your host, Malia, and this is the 46th episode. I cannot believe we're at number 46. Before I introduce our guest today, I want to kindly ask you if you can please go subscribe right now on YouTube. I know you're watching it on YouTube, so please hit that subscribe button, hit like, hit share, leave a comment. Let's go. Let's get this podcast out there, and please go follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hebrew underscore hits. We are also available on all your favorite streaming apps. Well, right now, I'm excited to introduce Yehuda Gelman. He started an organization called Highway of Hope, and I cannot wait to ask him all questions about how he started with rare diseases and really why he started this organization. Well, Yehuda, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Molly, for having me. Of course. So how's it been going like these past few days, especially like right now with Corona, now Corona's coming to an end. People say it's coming back. How are you dealing with all that? Um, so personally, I'm dealing with it well. You know, the school for the kids are uh, coming back to normal with, oh. to a degree. Um, as far as work in terms of my patient population, they are hurting. They're hurting because they're losing out on a lot of resources that were previously available to them. Because of COVID? Because of COVID. Wow. Is it affecting them in any way in like health-wise or? Um, so COVID, COVID's unique. <laughs> Despite being a year into it, we still, there's so much we don't know. But primarily the biggest issue is that our patient population are too hesitant to go to hospitals. Mm-hmm. But I think you find that in other areas as well. And as a result, they're losing out on treatments that they should have been having. Yeah, which is setting them back on their um, back towards cures and treatments. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about about rare diseases because this is a topic. It affects one in every ten, so that's ten percent of the population um, right. is affected with rare diseases. And for some reason, everybody's always like getting inspiration from people who have rare diseases. But for some reason, nobody's really trying to, as a whole, as a population really trying to find a cure besides for the people who are actually involved and actually, you know, researching rare diseases, which I would think if it's 10% of the population, so many people should be involved in searching for a cure. So I want to ask you, how did you get started with rare diseases? Okay. So I actually got started completely by accident. Um, Yeah. I uh, was working for an organization about, started working for them about five years ago, Mm -hmm. based in Maryland. And as the newest hire, they told me I had to go to um, to an event that they go to every year where they get funding from the government for their research and development uh, of treatments, of support and education and all that. And when, and when I went there, the entire event, there were about 350 people. Each one of them were from a different disease-specific organization. 
tackling a very specific rare condition. And to me, this was such a eye opener because I've never seen anything like that in our community, in our circles. Um, and I just got stuck right into it. So five years ago, you just randomly decided that you're going to volunteer for a random, random organization in Maryland when you're from New York. How did that happen? Like, how did you even find this organization? So there's an interesting backstory behind that. I, um, I was helping somebody who I know very well, who got really, um, he, he suffered, he suffered an injustice while trying to pursue a career path uh, due to a, um, an illness, a condition that he has. And um, when, when I was mulling it over, I, uh, I decided to try to find out if this condition is classified as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So I went on a whole search to try to figure this all out. And I did what shocks most people is I made it to page three of Google. <laughs> you were determined. And on, I was determined and on page three, I found an organization uh, buried somewhere in the middle of the page based in Maryland that deals specifically with this, with this condition. I was intrigued by the fact that there's a disease specific organization. Again, as I said before, in our circles, we don't have that um, as frequently. Um, so I called them up, tried figuring things out, started working, started talking to them, made a conscientious decision to uh, trek down there. I slept down to Maryland on a whim, walked in and uh, saw it was, it was actually, it was a sprawling building. It was a massive office and they had a nice operation. And to me, the thing that was most shocking was the fact that this organization had been around since 1984, which is the entirety of the life of that individual. Mm -hmm. Yet that individual never heard of that organization. So I walked in and I said, you know, guys, you're missing something. We got to get your name out there. Uh -huh. How can I help you get your name out there? Because people have to hear about you. Um, I started volunteering for them. A number Just, of months into... Wow. Yeah, because I was I was determined to really I was determined to really help them help other people. Mm -hmm. um, a number of months into my volunteer work, I was invited to a dinner okay. uh, that they were hosting in New York. I was asked to speak at the dinner. Wow. Which as I prepared a, I prepared a speech. And then just prior to me getting up to speak, they actually told me that. Uh, you know, the person who was supposed to speak actually made it here. You're off the hook. So the huge sigh of relief. I was really, I was pumped. I had no real interest at the time. To oh, you were happy. You didn't want to see. Oh, I was, I was, I was ecstatic. Yeah. You know, <laughs> granted, as much as I was invested in the organization, as much as it was really so much fun working with them, to mm -hmm. get up there and speak in front of a crowd that's not my, um, you know, not my type. Mm -hmm. It was something that I wasn't fully prepared for, but you know, they asked and I figured this goes along with what I was doing about trying to get their name out there. Okay. So I, that's why I agreed to that opportunity of actually getting up and speaking. When they let me off the hook, I, I breathed a huge sigh of relief and I said, <laughs> it was amazing. I enjoyed my dinner. 
uh, kosher dinner, by the way. Nice. Um, what you had like the airplane? Yeah. Food? Yeah, they gave me they gave me luxury airline food. No way. <laughs> yeah, there's a company called Louis G Siegel. It comes with it comes on a big porcelain plate. It was, wow. a, it, was a, it was a fun experience. It was yeah, it was definitely it was <laughs> definitely definitely an experience. That's nice. Um, so the woman who had asked me to speak actually came over to me afterwards. She was like, hey, some of the board members and want to know if you could speak to the entire board, to the entire staff, kind of share your experience working with us um, and like your genesis and how you got involved with the organization. I said, sure, no problem. And I got up and I did this like little impromptu speech. And the chairman of the board offered me a job on the spot. Wow. And you took it. I took it. So I'm just trying, let's just go back to the beginning. You were helping out this, this, this guy who had an injustice while he was trying to follow his career path because of a rare disease that he had. So not only did you try to help him, but you got a job from it. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. So what happened next? I'm like so intrigued. So I was tasked with telling the, going to doctors and talking to the doctors about the services that we offer, mm-hmm. such as support, education, research. Um, and uh, so that was, I got hired in September and mid-January that year, I mean, of the next year, Mm-hmm. They, my boss called me up and she's like, hey, by the way, uh, we're sorry to do this to you, but there's this conference that we get invited to every year. We go because we get funding from the government, mm-hmm. but uh, we don't want to go. Oh, <laughs> and lucky for us, you're a new hire, so you got to go. Oh, don't man. worry, your hotel going to be covered, your travel is going to be covered, but you got to go. Um and at first I was really ticked off because they're all based in Maryland. The whole conference was going to be in the DC, Maryland area. So I was like, come on, just go down there yourself. Yeah. Um, I went down and I would say it was probably about 30 minutes into the first day of conferences mm-hmm. that I met a woman who transformed my entire approach of rare disease and gave me that push to really get involved fully with the larger rare disease community. So there was a woman who got up and spoke. Um, She uh, she was tasked with teaching the advocates. That's what they would call. Um, We had about three, like I said, 350 people. Now this is a number that grows every year. This conference happens annually and the um, and the number is increasing. These are people from all across the country. And she gets up and she's telling how not to talk to Congress. Like, don't go in. She's like, hey, don't go in like this and say, Yo, oh, so you're from Madison. Do you know Steve? Don't do that to the congressman, she says. But the preamble, the, the thing that she said before everything was she introduced herself and she said her name. And she said the organization that she was with and was with an organization that deals exclusively with muscular dystrophy. Okay. To me, this was such a shock because it shouldn't have been. In hindsight, it shouldn't have been such a shock. 
because I found an organization that dealt with exclusively one other condition. Uh -huh. But I had a classmate who had muscular dystrophy. And uh -huh. so I was intrigued with the fact that there's an organization that deals exclusively with that. I went over to her, I started chatting with her and said, this is something that I have to bring back our community, that concept that there is organizations out there for each specific condition mm -hmm. and you can get a resource that might not be available to us. Wow. It's amazing because like, I'm so used to the Jewish community where there's organizations left and right, but you're right. When it comes to rare diseases, the Jewish people have not set up specific organizations for each. It really, it boils down to a numbers game. Mm -hmm. If a condition, so just to, to backtrack a little bit, um, when we talk about 32 million Americans living with a rare condition, mm -hmm. that let's just get two facts straight. And that is that a rare condition, a rare disease is classified as any condition that affects fewer than 200,000 people. Wow. On the other side of that is that there are roughly 7,000 rare conditions. Um, so if there's a condition that affects, let's say, 35,000 people mm -hmm. across every demographic and every race or ethnicity, so you're still only going to have like four or five Orthodox Jews. True. Right. I hear what you're saying. It's a much so not enough of a number at that point to say, okay, now we're going to open up our own organization to deal with four people. Right, 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 I hear. So that's kind of, I, I've come to realize that that's why there are no specific organizations within our community. Right, I hear that. No, no, I hear it. it makes so much more sense now. You know, so what happened after you spoke to that lady? You were this, you went on this con this conference yourself, right? And you were like so brave, but you like, you weren't shy to like just speak to all the people there? Uh, I, I was having so much fun. Oh, really? I was really having so much fun. You know, there's, there's, there's a, um, they actually give out every year because the way the conference goes is we have a day where we meet the new advocates and then also learn how to, how to advocate. Mm -hmm. The next day we actually go to Congress and we're broken up by state. Wow. So you, to, so you go to your state, so you go to, let's say, New York, you go to the New York senators, New York Congress people, but you go to the well, Congress to the people capital? from your districts. Yeah. Wow. Um, and every year that they, every year they know what's coming, like the congressmen know this is what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, they know, but more often than not, the Congress people aren't in, in there and we're meeting with staffers and we're taught that that's important. The staffers have the ear of the Congress people. Every once in a while, we'll actually meet with a congressman or a senator, and it's a lot of fun. Wow. So I have this question for you. For you, you at this conference, there's so many people. Who has been the coolest person you've met with the rare diseases? Um, coolest person I met at this conference or in general? You're working with rare diseases. I mean, you went to this conference, and then you, your eyes opened up, it seems like, to even a bigger picture, like more bigger, like a bigger thing of rare diseases. And then I'm assuming that you're able to meet other people through that. So who has been the coolest person you've ever met? Gosh, that's such a that's such an interesting question because um, so many individuals are so interesting in their own right. Yeah. There's uh, from an individual who um, found that his daughter was diagnosed with a very rare um, condition, mm -hmm. quit his job and started a pharmaceutical company. 
when his daughter was diagnosed, she was told, the family was told that she'd have two years to live. His daughter graduated from college two years ago on the wow. backs of the treatment that he produced. Wow. Well, that's, that's one type of interesting individual. Uh, on the other hand, uh, yeah, on the other hand, I met, um, I had the privilege of meeting uh, an individual who became blind at about, in his young teenage years, due to a rare condition. Mm-hmm. And did not let that stop him, that in 2001 became the first blind person to climb Mount Everest. No way, and you met this person. I met him, I consider him a very dear friend. Wow, so how how did he not allow that to stop him? Like, how did he physically do it? Like, how in the world did he physically climb Mount Everest? So (laughs) that's an interesting question. I never really um, delved into it. He did have a guide with him. Okay. Um, obviously, tethered to a guide. Um, but it's really, he actually says that to a degree, he has an advantage over the sighted people. And wow. that is that he's not nervous of heights. He doesn't know if he's at 13,000 feet or at five feet. Wow, that's so interesting. <laughs> that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. Like he's not able to see anything. He's completely blind. Completely blind. That's so sad. And he knows what vision is because he was able to see. Correct. I can't believe he did that. Wow. He's, he's actually a special ed teacher now. Wow. And fully, wow. I don't know how these people do it. They're such overachievers, no? Um, to a degree, they're overachievers. To a, de- to a degree, they're just showing the, the rest of the world. Yeah. As there is so much more that you could achieve. It's not that they're over, let's change the narrative. Not that they're overachievers, but they're essentially saying that everybody else might be potentially underachievers. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like I see a lot of people with rare diseases, like a lot of them are pushing themselves past their limits. First of all, how is that physically possible? And second of all, why is that? Since you you, you know more in this topic. When you said, why is that? You wanna, how is that? How do they possible? push themselves further? Yeah, like how is, like, I know that like people who, you know, who are totally healthy with no rare diseases, they, they can't even, you know, let's say climb out Everest. And then you have this man who's literally blind and he's pushing himself past his limits. So there's, there's many answers to that question. I think, I think to a degree, one of the main answers that could be given is the fact that um, some people with rare conditions with those disabilities as it were, um, in an effort to, to normalize themselves mm-hmm. in, the, in the general society, they say to themselves, okay, if we push ourselves in this one area, we achieve that, then okay, we can't hold down a job. Right. Right. Hey, we climb Mount Everest, so I can get a job. Um, I think that's one answer that propels these individuals. Um, another thing is to show more themselves. Again, it all goes back to themselves. They're not trying to show off to anybody else. They're showing themselves that they are more than their disability, than more than their condition, 
yeah, I don't care that I was in the hospital for 131 days that year. I'm going to swim the English Channel. Um, the British guy who I met once, um, also with a rare condition, he spent he spent close to a year in the hospital and swam the English Channel. This was in 1993. Okay. Um, so I think that's why they do it is to show that they. Again, for themselves, they're showing that they are not limited by their condition, that they could achieve some measure of what the world considers normal. Mm-hmm. They thrive yeah. for that. They strive for it. They thrive on it. It's amazing because some of the most accomplished people are the ones who have a disease. Or if you look, in, if you look you'll see that a lot of these people really do push themselves. I mean, a lot of people also don't push themselves if they're healthy, if they're not healthy, you know what I'm saying? It All depends right. if, It depends how much you're gonna push yourself. I wanna, I wanna talk about your organization now, Highway of Hope, because okay. you, right now you volunteered for this organization and you end up getting a job. Why did you leave and why did you come to start your own organization? Okay, so um, when, as, as the organization was growing, as the Hydrocephalus Association, where I was, as it was growing, um, there were certain services that I felt they could have offered. Mm-hmm. Um, they opted to not offer it for whatever reason. Okay. I requested that they um, allow me to do it on my own time. They gave me approval. And I kind of found some similarities between one condition to another condition and said, okay, if this worked for this condition, maybe we could take that playbook, bring it to another condition, mm-hmm. see if it'll work there. Maybe we need to tweak one or two things. I went to another organization. I said, hey, I have this crazy idea. Why don't we try it? I know you've been around since whenever. Mm-hmm. Well, let's give it a try. Um, and then another organization's like, hey, that's crazy talk. Uh, I would push. I would bring in some patients to try to convince the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, more often than not, the organizations would be like, okay, fine, you know, we'll, we'll try it. We'll pilot program, we'll do it for a week. We'll do it for a month. Um, but as I saw traction on that, again, this is all disease-specific organizations. Mm-hmm. As I saw traction on that, I saw a way to increase the reach of the single individual by coming up with these systems. And that, that became the uh, the genesis of the organization. Oh, wow. So how did you come up with the name Highway of Hope? So I'm just gonna go back to my first time I went to a conference. Uh-huh. The, the setup of the conference is, and this is important for the name of Highway of Hope and how we came up with it. Um, the setup of the conference is like I said, day one, they're teaching you how to talk to Congress. And they break you up into small groups based off of your state towards the end of the day. Um, I actually met with some of the folks that I work with. And because each, there's generalized asks, they're called. And so we're asking Congress for increased funding for, you know, get this bill signed, get this legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, and each individual, not just, by state, but each individual organization could have their own ask. It's like, oh, I want newborn screening for XYZ condition. Okay. Or, or we need we need research funding for, for this, or we need to get FDA approval for that. 
Um, so those are what's called the private asks. We, um, so we're at this conference, this whole day conference, and we all get our stars this an hour into the conference. And I, these, as much as I got excited by it and I geeked out a little bit, um, the conferences are very boring. Oh, man. Get up and it's, the, it's like, hi, my name is whatever, right? This and this. Yeah. And then they go into a whole dry scientific background of the condition. And it's important, but it's science -y. It's It's legislation. It's boring. Yeah. And I, you look around the room and 75, 80% of the people are on their phones, right? Oh, man. I, I happen to have been on my phone the entire time, just <laughs> as an aside. I was on my oh. phone the entire time, but I was using my phone as, as my note taker. So I was actually oh, jotting okay. notes. So, Fine, good one. But, but a lot of people, a lot of people were scrolling Instagram and whatever. So I went over to one of the, I went over to one of the um, heads of the conference and I said, hey, totally crazy ass. Could I steal the mic for two minutes? I know I'm not scheduled to speak. I'm an unknown. Right uh, before lunch, could I oh. borrow the mic just for two minutes? You are so brave. And like, uh, he's like, uh, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I take the mic and I say, hi, guys. Quick, right before lunch, we're about to go. I know you're going to go get your lunch and everything. We all have our gorgeous scars and we all recognize each other, but we're all fighting for, for funding for ourselves or our children or a relative or somebody that we know or, and or love. Mm -hmm. We need a little bit more excitement, I feel. And we need like a rallying cry, like you go to Super Bowl, right? Yeah. And the, the crowd's cheering, you gotta have some kind of cheer. Yeah. Um, so guys, I'm not going to leave you high and dry. I think the best rallying cry that we could come up with is um, there's a Yiddish expression. And again, I'm the only person with the yarmulke <laughs> in the entire room. Oh my God. And I'm like, there's a Yiddish expression when two people part ways, they say to each other, Zygazun, which means go in good health. Okay. I said, here we're championing for rare disease research for promoting health and well-being for our loved ones. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a more appropriate like rallying cry than Zygazunt. Wow. So with your permission, I want you all to just stand up and say Zygazunt. And they're all trying, they're, they're trying to get the words out. And they oh. said it, they're like all hesitant, Zygazunt or whatever. And, oh, um, and now they're off Instagram by now. Huh? By now they're off Instagram, they're off scrolling. Yeah, and they, and I was like, no, 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 come on, I'll say it slowly. And I enunciated the words. Yeah. They they repeated it. They said it a second time. They said it a third time, and they got like all into it. So much so that the next day, as I'm walking the halls of Congress, I see a group of people walking towards me, and they're from like Montana, and they're uh -huh. like, hey. <laughs> It was, it, was, it was amazing. It was so much fun. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. But how, what, how does that connect with Highway of Hope? So, so that's that, that approach of changing the narrative of, right? We had that standard narrative up until that point. It's one in 10 Americans live with a rare disease. Yeah. 
there are 32 million Americans. There are 7,000 rare diseases. These are these are talking points, but it's missing it on the for the general population. Like I said, those speeches were boring. They were they were not they were important, but they were dry. And yes. we're trying to put a little bit of spice. That night after the conference, so we actually had a, a dinner meeting in the one kosher restaurant in Washington, DC. A restaurant yes. called Charbar. Um, I met with my my team from the organization that I was working with. Mm-hmm. But because I um, because I had the Davin Shachris the next morning, so I would stay in a, I stayed in a hotel in Silver Spring, Maryland. Okay. Now from DC to Maryland to Silver Spring is a fifteen minute drive, okay. roughly. Um, we finished the dinner. I get into the car. I turn on the GPS. And it says, okay, 15-minute drive. You're going to go up three blocks. You're going to make a right. You're going to cut right through a park. Um, like we have in New York at Central Park. In mm-hmm. D.C., it's a place called Rock Creek Park. Okay. Um, I said, just cut right through there. You end up on the other end. You go down one block. There's Maryland. And then you a little left, some rights, and you're there. Mm-hmm. You start driving. And I go to make the right turn into the park. And there's a sign that says that the park is closed to vehicular traffic at night. Oh, wow. Okay, so I don't think anything of it. You know, again, we have GPSs. Right. Especially with Google, you just continue driving. It just recalculates, redirects. But now it's sending me into Virginia. How far is that? Um, not too far. They're, they're all fairly close to one another. Okay. Um, they... Um, so I went over uh, so I went over a bridge to head into Virginia, and now I'm on a highway called the John F. Kennedy Memorial Highway. It's a gorgeous okay. two-lane highway. Again, it's pitch black, but it's well-paved. It's a nice highway. But And I'm driving, the GPS says, okay, by the way, haha, the 14-minute drive that you had, now 45 minutes. I don't care. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm, I'm upset about it. I wanted to get back to the hotel and get a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, I start driving on this highway and there's a number of cars on the road with me. And um, and I'm following the GPS. And then at that, at about 10 miles into the drive, I'm the only car on the road. I don't think anything of it. Again, I'm, I'm zoned oh, into no. my drive, focusing on my drive. I have the, I have the music playing through, uh, through an app. I have the maps and I'm okay. I'm doing my thing. I'm relaxing. Oh no. But then the maps cut out and it can't find me on the map. And it's trying to find me. The map is trying to find me, but then my music stops working. Oh my gosh. Because again, I'm streaming. Yeah. Your whole so internet I try went making, out. So I try making a phone call to my wife and it doesn't connect. And that's when like panic set in. I was like, oh my gosh. I'm on a, okay, I'm on a highway or whatever, but now a deer is going to run out. I'm going to crash into the deer. I'm going to go off the side of the road. Nobody's going to find me until tomorrow morning. Ah, oh, this is terrible. Right? Oh my God. That's what was going through my mind. I was panicked. I, I, it, it was palpable. I, I couldn't. I was like, on a road I don't know. Do I get off at this exit? Do I go another 40 exits? Where do I go? How do I go? Oh, man. I see a car in the distance. Okay. Right? Subconsciously, I'm thinking, uh, realizing after the fact how stupid it was, but subconsciously, I was like, okay, 
I'm going to catch up to that car. So at least I'll be on the road with somebody else. So oh, if I no. go off the ditch, he'll see me in the rearview mirror and he'll like hopefully stop or at least call 911. <laughs> oh no. So I'm flying to try to catch up to him. And it's it's a losing battle. And again, also realistically now in hindsight, he's probably a Virginia res resident and he's getting off at some hot exit and going to his house and wondering mm -hmm. why some dude is following him. Um, with New York plates. With New York plates, no less. <laughs> I, I continue driving. Uh, so, uh, but again, in my mind, I'm not, I'm not thinking coherently. Right. I'm speeding up to try to catch him. Then I notice a car behind me, about two, three miles back. Again, it's okay. an empty road. So the visibility was, it was a clear night. The visibility, visibility was great. I, um, I slow down. Also, subconsciously, I slow down, figuring he'll catch up to me and then we'll be on the road together. Right. I continue driving. I'm driving for another three, four minutes. I say, okay, I calm down a little bit. I'm going to get off this exit. I'm going to go to a gas station, find out how to get to my hotel. Call my wife from a payphone if there is a payphone. Um, and I'll be okay. Yeah. That's when the GPS turns back on. That's when the music starts again. Uh, um, the GPS says, by the way, you got to go another mile and a half, get off at the, an exit and a half later. And then you'll be like three minutes away from your hotel. Wow. So, so I get to, I get to the hotel. I okay. call my wife. She was like, where were you? Is everything okay? Or all panic. I said, yeah, the GPS, whatever. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Um, and I'm getting ready for bed and it hits me. I'm like, wait a minute. I just spent my first day at a rare disease conference. Mm -hmm. And I just stole a microphone to try to change people's narrative. And yeah. here I am, I'm driving on a highway that I shouldn't have been driving on. Wait, oh my God, that is the journey of a rare disease patient. And let me explain. What that means is, so a child is born and the parents think to themselves, okay, this is great. My kid is going to go to this elementary school so he could get into that college. I'm talking about the uh, mm -hmm. general public. Um, yeah. To go into that college and he's going to be a, a, get into the minors, to the majors. He's going to get signed by the Yankees or the or the <laughs> Knicks or the Nets or whatever it is, right? Yeah. He's going to be the next Tom Brady. Oh my God, it's amazing, right? Or he's going to be the next Bill Gates. This is my child's life, mm -hmm. right? Or this is her life, and she's gonna she's gonna go on to become the first female president. It's wow, remarkable, right? Then they start noticing something's not right with their child's development. Oh, yeah. That right turn that they had to make to put them on the path of that of their child's life, that perfect path of that child's life, um, not happening. So they continue driving. They get onto a new road. They're on a road that they don't, it's not familiar for them. Mm -hmm. And that's when they get the diagnosis. They're on this road. There are some other cars on the road with them, but that's when they get the diagnosis and everything goes black. Wow. Like, my kid is child number one of a hundred in the entire world. They just came up with a name for the condition. There's no treatment. There's no cure. There's no, oh there's, my no gosh. there's no knowledge of this. Oh my God. And, and, their world just comes collapsing. Wow. But they're forced to navigate this road anyway. And they 
continue driving on this road and they see a car ahead of them and they realize that that subconsciously they realize that's another parent of another child who has a rare condition and they fly to try to catch up to that parent they're gonna go they're gonna go they're gonna go then they realize okay it's futile they're not going to be able to do it they see the car behind them they say wait a minute i know how terrifying it was for me i'm going to slow down so this guy behind me can catch up to me i'll teach him the ropes no way the guy oh behind my god me. i'll teach the guy behind me and Whoa. then the two of them go together potentially right but then that's when the gps goes back on that's when they start getting oh. a measure of clarity that's when the music starts playing, right? Oh my God. That's when they start seeing that, hey, wait a minute. Maybe there is hope. Maybe we understand what, we don't understand why this happened to us. Right. But now we could figure out how to navigate it. Now we understand our purpose. We understand how to deal with our child or ourselves or our spouse. So that became the genesis of Highway of Hope. That's the name oh, of the organization. Oh my God. I can't even, that's crazy. And then Highway of Hope because you're on the Highway of Hope, basically. I'm on the highway, yeah. Oh my gosh. I want and to fall the, off my chair right now. <laughs> the, uh, that is, the, oh my gosh. And this is amazing how you did it all for this. Like, It's just like amazing how you started rare diseases because you were helping out this kid and then you volunteered and then you started your own organization. What's going on with this kid right now? Like, did he ever finish like whatever he was doing in his career path? Like what ended up happening with him? Um, good question. Uh, he's relatively successful now. And you're still in touch with him, are you? I am in touch with him, yes. Wow, so what's, so how's he doing? Like, uh, He's doing well, he's doing well. He's holding his own, he's married with some kids. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, he's working, he's holding down a solid job. Okay. Um, but yeah, we keep in touch. That's, I'm gonna, that's just very, I mean, it's like, it's so cool how it all happened just from that one person. So I wanna ask you now another thing about Highway of Hope. If you could describe Highway of Hope in one sentence, what would it be? Okay, I would say Highway of Hope empowers individuals mm -hmm. uh, with rare diseases by connecting them with mentors, doctors, and legislators, right? So that they could live their life the, their fullest, despite their limitations, despite their difficulties, despite their disease. Okay, so that's what you would say. And that's how, what I would how, say. And, and in that order. Going, in that order. And have you been going back to the conferences? Uh, every year. With, with, your, with your organization, I'm saying. Yes, yes, every year. And how many? I mean, this year we're this year we're yeah. out. Oh, because of COVID. Uh, yeah, COVID. Blame everything um, on COVID. <laughs> all right. And how many patients and volunteers do you have currently? So we recently hit patient number a thousand. Whoa. Since we started. And how many years has it been? Um, as a registered organization, we're around for two years since 2018. And 1,000 patients. Yeah. Wow. And how many volunteers? We have a little over 300 full-time volunteers. Uh, not full-time. I give quite a number of hours a week. Well, all and around you have the country. any full-time? You have full-time volunteers? We do have a few full-time volunteers. So now yeah. I want to ask you, how can someone dedicate like a full, their full-time, like without, you know, as a volunteer? Without pay. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so the individuals that we have as, as our full-timers, 
Mm-hmm. Um, one is a mom, uh, two are moms of children with rare conditions. So they're stay-at-home okay. moms. Okay, so that makes um, sense. So they give us a lot of time. And one is actually a little a little boy, not so little, it's a teenager who, um, who spends, unfortunately, quite a lot of time in the hospital. And this gives him a sense of purpose. Oh, wow. So it's people who are involved. To, to get involved. He wanted right. to get involved. He begged and... Uh, we have him, he's actually one of our biggest mentors. We have him speaking to young adults and mm. children. That is so amazing that you have. So it's people that are dealing with rare diseases that are a part of your organization. Correct. And now that you're on the topic of, like you said, moms are involved in you know the organization. I know that there's nothing like a parent's love for their child. They'll do anything for their child. So can you please explain the difference between a mom, a parent, a sibling who's dealing with a child um, with a rare disease versus a doctor who's dealing with a patient? Sure. So let, let's uh, understand the, the, the doctor-patient relationship. The doctors mm-hmm. had gone through X number of years of schooling, then went and found their specialty, built their specialty, and see patients within that specialty. Um, and they're going to see they're going to see a whole host of patients that run all various conditions within that specialty. Um, so, like I said about all the way at the beginning about it, how it's not financially viable for for an organization to be disease specific within our circles uh, because there might only be five people. So now translate that to a doctor who might be the biggest in his field in a big hospital, let's say in New York, so let's say Mount Sinai. Um, And he might be a leading expert, a a global expert even. He only has 24 hours in a day. And just the the sheer number of patients nationwide um, would make it that he might not see enough patients on a daily basis or even on an annual basis with a specific condition. So Uh. I'll see five, 10, even 30, and that's considered a lot. Um, but but in reality, when when he finishes with that patient, he might do a little bit more research. He might ask some colleague. He might go to a medical conference. He might check out some journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's going to move on to the next patient. Right. When that patient leaves the room, the patient and their family go back to the books and they pound the books and they're opening up every channel of communication to try to figure out how could we help ourselves or our child. And they'll find an obscure reference to the condition on some Facebook group that's based in Sydney, Australia. And they'll reach out to the guy on Sydney, Australia and say like, hey, how's it present? How do you deal with it and whatnot? They'll go back to the doctor with that information. Right. But more often than not, the doctor doesn't want to listen. Because the doctor's like, I went to school, I know. Yeah, yeah. Don't the the famous trope that's given out that that's thrown around is don't confuse your Google search with my eight years of schooling. Wow. But it's amazing because the the parents are living with this child every single day and they spend all their time with the child. They know so much more about the disease then it seems like the doctor does though. So why would the doctor not listen? Because it's it's like a ego thing? Uh, Ego, superiority complex, or 
often it's I think it's really I think it's deeper than that. I think it's actually the fact that they um the doctors uh, there, there's there's a mindset about people in general is okay. you can't be helped by somebody who you're helping. You or wait, the, say that again, you could be helped or you can't. You could not be helped by somebody who you are helping. It feels it feels oh. wrong, I guess. And the flip oh. side of that is equally as true is you can't help. You can't help the person who's helping you. So sometimes you'll have a mom who will hesitate to say to the doctor, because in her mind, she'll be like, the doctor is the professional. He went to school. Yeah, I found this group in, like I said, Sydney, but who am I to say anything to him? Right. Right. So He's how do you the professional. change that, though? How so would you change up, that? We, we came up with an interesting, uh, an interesting idea we've seen a lot of success with is when we have a patient that's diagnosed with a condition. Okay. And they under, uh, that has the diagnosis, not a fresh diagnosis. They have a diagnosis for a while and they understand that what treatment the child needs, right? Or the patient, however old the patient is. And they reach out to the doctor and they'll say, okay, we need to try this and this. I need you to prescribe. I need you to do this procedure. The doctor's not going to listen. Right. But the doctor will listen to a colleague or a peer, right? Somebody that's on level with that doctor. So ah. what we'll do is we'll bring in another parent of a child with the exact same condition. Mm -hmm. And we'll say, okay, this is what happened with child A. This is what child A needs. We need you as the professional of that condition, to call up the doctor and say, hi, I'm an advocate, right? I'm a colleague, I'm, we're on the same level. And if we're not exactly so on the same level, I'm at least, a, I'm just a drop lower than you, uh -huh. right? This is an area that I've researched to the end. In fact, if you need a, any questions in the future, you can contact me, it's my pleasure to help you. Unbeknownst to the doctor, the person who they're talking to is a mom of another kid. So now mom A gets helped by mom B wow. and mom B gets helped by mom A. Wow, but the doctor doesn't team. question that though? Like the doctor doesn't say, let well, me see your paperwork, well, let me hear where you know this from. No, no, more often than not, it doesn't work like that. So uh, when you come in and you say, hi, I'm an uh, advocate on behalf of you know, this and this patient, mm -hmm. they, they, kind of, they tend to take your word for it. And, and they um, don't think it's just another mother what would make them think it again you have to wow. let's go back to the understanding of how rare these conditions are right right so if there's a condition that affects a thousand people in the country and this doctor has two patients right is he really going to think that some mother at the west coast who has a kid with the exact same condition is calling right 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 I it, hear. Doesn't it's just like, it doesn't right, compute it doesn't like the doctor wouldn't listen to the mom it's like why would he i mean I understand it's not, he doesn't think of it as a mom. He thinks of it as more of an advocate, but like, why would the doctor not ask more questions about who are you? Like all that stuff, or is that just normal? Um, that is, that is normal. That is normal. At least, at least when it comes to rare conditions. Yeah. Because so again, there's, there's so much that is still unknown. Oh yeah. Every new piece of information is, is informative and important. So that's a part of your organization that you started? It's a special That is program. a program that, yeah, that is a program that we have. Wow. And how did you push your organization out to the world? Like, how did you 
get the pay? Like, how did patients start coming to you? How did volunteers start coming your way? We're still not actively pushing it out. Okay. Uh, we never really made a concerted effort mm -hmm. to push it out. Um, we do, it started about, I would say about four years ago, even before the organization started. Um, I noticed that there was a lot of support and medical questions happening on disease-specific Facebook groups. Okay. So we started, I started getting involved with a lot of those. And then as questions would come in, I'd have some of the answers. Other times I won't have an answer, but based off of the question, I'll reach out to an organization that I have mm -hmm. an affiliation with get the answer to the question, bring it back to the group. Um, and it just kind of ballooned from there. So you spent a lot, a lot of hours, I'm assuming, no? Oh, a lot of hours. Yeah, and me, cool. and Mark, me and Mark Zuckerberg spend the most time on Facebook every day. Uh -huh. <laughs> and this is before even starting Highway of Hope, or this is once you already uh, established? No, this is, this is before. Oh, this is before. And then once people already... Highway of Hope was always... It was always an idea that was germinating in the back of my mind uh -huh. um, from my very first day at the conference, mm -hmm. you know, five years ago. But it was never it was never about starting an organization. Right. It was it about was, helping. It was about helping those individuals understand that they could help themselves. Wow. Not that we're going to help them, that we're going to give them the tools that they can help themselves. And how are you trying to change the narrative of how people look at rare diseases? Okay, so one in 10 Americans are living with a rare disease. It's a standardized number, again, with 7,000, roughly 7,000 rare conditions, mm -hmm. um, each one affecting fewer than 200,000 people. That, that gives you a huge amount of, of individuals. Yeah. Um, so I took a page out of the... Uh, <laughs> out of my childhood, it Jewish geography. Lot. I took a page out of my childhood, Jewish wow. geography. Oh. Um, there's a, you know, they say if you've, if you don't know, um, if you're talking to somebody and you don't find the commonality, you haven't spoken, been speaking long enough. Um, <laughs> yeah, when we first started speaking, you knew like my family right away. You're like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. So, so in, in that regard, the the narrative that we're attempting to change is that we can, uh, I make this quasi guarantee and that is that any individual over the age of 18 I could all but guarantee that they know somebody personally with one degree of connection and I'm not talking a best friend I'm talking a relative um, that has a rare condition wow. because if they know the average 18 year old might know 20 people right or be related even if you're going to a second cousin yeah um chances are that they're going to know somebody with a rare condition and the first time i came up with that so something i actually said it at a conference mm -hmm. and one guy comes over to me afterwards and everybody's nodding they're like oh that's such a cool way of looking at it and all that one guy comes over to me afterwards. Um, he's from Salt Lake City, Utah. He says, hang on. 
I don't know anybody with a rare condition. Yeah. So you're wrong. Okay. I don't know anybody. So what do you say? Hang on. I said, hang on. Come with me. Take him back to the conference. I go back onto the mic. I grab the mic. I go over oh to the crowd. I'm like, guys, quickly, one second. Look, I found the one person that doesn't know anybody. That means that since he's the only one that came over to me to say that, that means everybody else really does, in fact, know somebody with a rare disease. But then I turn to the guy. I'm like, by the way, do you know that person? And I point to somebody in the crowd who he yeah. happened to have been sitting next to. He was like, yeah, that's whatever. We flew together. She's from Salt Lake City. Uh -huh. I'm like, yeah, you know, she has a rare condition. Okay. And he's like, I didn't even know. I know that she has this condition because I've known her my whole life. Yeah. I didn't know that that condition was classified as rare. Wow. But that's oftentimes where the first aspect, where that understanding and awareness really matters. And why it's important to, why it's important to know that there's that designation of rare is because with that designation, um, there is there is a greater chance of of a slightly different track for research and development of drugs. There's I'm curious why that man was at the conference, though. He didn't know anybody with a rare disease. What was he doing there? So that wasn't a rare disease conference. That was a oh, that generalized. Wasn't. That was a generalized scientific. Um, it was a it was a pharmaceutical conference that I was attending called the World Orphan Drug Congress. It's every okay. year in DC, one in DC and one in Dubai, uh -huh. um, and one in England somewhere. And um, somewhere I go to the yeah, I go to the I go to the one in DC. Um, yeah, so so that's why he was that's why he was in attendance. Now I have to ask you because the entire mantra of Hebrew hits is it's what you do is what you have that makes a difference. And I know that you helped the kid out, you know, and then you, this basically like fell into your lap. Um, this, and now you're really a part of the rare diseases, but I, how, how do you fit in with the show's mantra other than that of it's what you do with what you have that makes a difference. Cause that's the entire theme of the show. So that young man who I helped out those yeah. years ago, um, that was me. Whoa, I'm out of here. No way. That was me. I um I'm done. Yeah. End of conference. Hold on a second. Hold on, hold on, hold on. That's it. This entire this entire time, now I have to fix my chair because I kind of like left it. Um, this entire time I've been thinking that you helped out a kid. And this entire time it's been you. The entire time. Oh. Which kind of segues very nicely into the fact. When, when again, when you go back to the narrative of what the organization's about, it's about helping those people impacted by a rare condition fend for themselves and advocate for themselves. Hold on a Is second. I need to let this sink in a little bit, though. <laughs> I, hold on one second. You're the kid. I've been talking about this nonchalantly. You helped out a kid, and that's you. I'm that kid. I'm that kid. That's next level. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Now it fits in perfectly with the show. I was like, hey, rare diseases, but I got to ask you this question with the mantra. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, I met a guy about also a number of years ago. He told me that he did bike for high. 
And I was I was so floored that this, this guy, again, this is somebody who the last time I met him was actually when I was about 18. I was in Artisrael and I met him at the Kaisal. Wow. Um, yeah, that was the first time, at least that I remember, that I ever met this person. Mm-hmm. And he tells me that he did bike for Kai. And I was like, wow, no, <laughs> you didn't do bike for Kai. He's like, no, 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 I'm telling you, I did bike for Kai. Why? Um, What's the big deal that he could that he did bike so for Kai? Because uh, he, has, he has cerebral palsy. I was oh, so wow. shocked. I was like, that, that doesn't make sense. And um, he said, no, I, I did bike for high. Uh, I didn't even think for more than five seconds. Um, I guess the entire theme of how I hope is the fact that I didn't think. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, oh, my gosh. Um, I went to, I went to, I immediately called somebody who works at Bike for Chai, and I said, hey, um, I'm going to sign up. Wow. And she's like, are you sure? Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. This was actually, I didn't even call her. I met her on Chavez. Okay. Um, she, so I met this guy in school on Chavez. We... Again, after the coastal. No, that was the, after the coastal, fast okay. forward to 2017, and I meet him in school. In Lakewood, New Jersey. Okay. Um, I was spending Shabbos by my sister-in-law with the family. And I bump into him and he says, oh my God, it's a long time I see, whatever. By the way, I did bike for Chai. I'm like, you're lying. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't believe you. He's yes. like, no, I'm telling you, I did bike for Chai. And I come back to my sister-in-law's house and I say to my sister-in-law, who actually works at the Bike for Kyle office, I said, hey, I'm going to sign up. Like, do you own a bike? Said, no. Like, uh, have you rode a bike? I'm like, no. Like, so why are you signing up? I said, because I met this guy, and he told me that he rode. Did he really ride? She's like, yeah, he rode last year. I was so yeah. shocked by that. So I, um, I signed up. I figured, okay, I could always just bow out and not actually do the ride. Mm-hmm. I borrowed a bike, started training. This was in, I started training February, March, around that time okay. in spin class, and then went for my first outdoor ride in around June. Wow. 27, 26, 2017. Okay. And bike you've been doing it ever since? Bike for Kai was 2018. I, I'm sorry, 20, it was in July that year. Okay. Um, so I had like a little bit over a month of outdoor training. Um, wow. My furthest ride I did prior to Bike for Chai was 40 miles. Bike for Whoa. Chai. For those who don't know, the one person who might listen to your podcast who doesn't know that Bike for Chai is 180 miles, um, uh, here it is. I just dropped that. Um, wow. Oh my God. I didn't so know that. My, didn't know my longest day. ride to that date was 40 miles, but wow. I was training in New York. I was training in the Rockaways, which is flat. There are no hills. Mm-hmm. So even though I rode all the way to like the Verrazano Bridge and then back, um, I didn't really get a lot of elevation. But in my mind, again, I was like, how, how difficult to bike for Hybe? It's just yeah. what I did then. A second time, and then a third time, and then one more time, one and a half oh, more times. 
Yeah. Um, so I sign up for Bike to Chai. I, um, I get onto the bike. Day one of Bike for Chai. I pull out of the hotel. I guess it's a breeze because right when we came out of the hotel, there was a downhill. Oh, that was amazing. I could do this for <laughs> Right. Oh, it's a few days bike for high. They store it all in a one two day. day. It's a two-day bike ride. At least this was pre-COVID. Um, okay. Oh my God, this is this is amazing. I could do this forever. Yeah. <laughs> we get to the bottom of the hill, but but yeah, what goes down? <laughs> you gotta get back <laughs> up. And I get to this hill, and I'm like, I start cycling, I start pedaling, and I'm like, yeah. I'm gonna call it quits right now. I'm gonna turn around. I'm gonna go back to the hotel. I'm gonna get a car to drive me all the way to the end. Say, oh. look at me, I did bike for Chai, yeah. <laughs> um, and some guy pulls up right next to me. I'm panting, I'm, I'm, I'm wetting buckets, trying to get yeah. up this, this really, it was a nerdy hill. It, oh, was. No. it, was, a, it was a truly nerdy hill. Um, <laughs> but I didn't have the technique because I never rode hills before. Oh never my rode God. a bike really before. Mm -hmm. um, and some guy comes up on my right. He's like, coming up on your right. He pulls up next to me. He's like, hey, Huda. And I'm delirious because even though it's only three minutes into my ride or five mm -hmm. minutes into my ride, I couldn't figure out how he knew my name. How he, oh. I had completely forgotten that on the backs of the bikes, our name, we had name tags. Oh. <laughs> so, you, so as you're riding, you could pull out the riders next to you. Mm -hmm. um, I had completely forgotten about it. He, pull up, he pulls up next to me. He's like, hey, I'm Ben. I'm like, oh, nice to meet you. Like, <laughs> you know, the little engine that could, I think I can, I think I can. Yeah. Uh, so met the little engine that could. That's a great book. Um, I got an interesting story about a book, but I digress. Um, and some guy comes up on my left. He's like, Yehuda, I'm Scott. You know what? He's like, hey, Yehuda, I'm Scott. Okay, I'm like, Scott. Hi. Like, you got this. Just two more pedal strokes. You got this. Come on, come on. Push. Lower your gear. Do this. They're coaching me up the hill. I get to the top of the hill. And I turn to them. I'm like, thanks, guys. I'm turning around. Oh, no. You got up the hill. Just at the end of the block. I get to the end of the block. They're like, I don't want more block. Come on, we'll ride with you a little bit. We'll ride with you a lot of it. Right? Um, so they started riding with me. Um, again, so this is my first, like I said, this is my first ever bike ride or bike for Kai. This is my, my, I hit the 40 mile mark finally after quite a number of hours. Um, and wow. I turned to these guys. I'm like, okay, I pushed myself one more mile. I did the furthest ever I ever rode. I'm like, guys, I'm done. I'm checking out. I'm going to tell the guy who, my friend, you know, I'm going to say, I see that you really did it. I'm impressed. I'm out. I'm done. See you later. Like, come on. You can't stop at one mile after your longest ride. Go a little further. Ended up doing um, about 55 miles. Okay. The first day of bike for high. On the bike ride, I met a, uh, an individual who became a very close friend of mine um former camper okay we've been friends ever since um i took a i took a part of the uh the hotel for the end of day one you know finishing my day with only 55 miles out of i think it was 110 
Okay. And I made the conscientious decision that day two, I'm not going to ride. Okay. I did my piece. I'm just not going to ride day two. Are you able to um, take breaks like after 50 yeah, miles? You could take breaks after take... two miles. They have, they have uh, rest stops set up, but you could take breaks whenever you want. Okay. Fine. Um, so and, they also have, and they also have vehicles coming around asking if you need any help. Either they'll take you somewhere yeah. or fix your tire or whatnot. So what happened day two? Um, I go down for breakfast and I see my friend from Lakewood and he's in his biking gear and he's getting his bike. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're riding? He's like, yeah. <laughs> I said, I'm coming. <laughs> wait for me. <laughs> Hang on, I'm coming. Yeah. Um. So I, I did day two, I did 30, some odd miles day two um i ended up doing for the entire two days i did about 86 miles wow with a couple of thousand feet of elevation right of wow. climbing of terrible hills um you know i have a remote there's that remarkable team the two guys scott and ben who were with me the whole time yeah. but back in the five towns there's a tremendous group of five towns riders that I wrote a little bit with beforehand, um, so we built a we built a relationship with, um, and also there are guys that I know from the community. Mm -hmm. um, what what propelled me to do that that bike ride, like I said, was that guy who I met who said that he the guy I met at the Kaisel, who said that he did it with um, cerebral palsy. Right. Um, because I. As a result of my condition, I also have cerebral palsy. Oh, wow. No way. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The story is like <laughs> getting better and better and better. Like from the Highway of Hope. Oh, yes. Wait, you have it right now. Like for like that's what you have. That that's it. Yeah. Oh, my With me for God. life. Oh, my gosh. And you did 80 something miles. 80 something miles. Oh my gosh, I have to go bike for guys. Is it only for girl? Is it only for boys though? Um, it is not only for I think that's where the simple, I think they call it. Mm -hmm. For for girls. Oh my gosh, I can't You'll believe that call. it's like oh that's like oh my gosh. I'm telling you, there's just like so yeah. many stories as an end. What else? What else? Like tell me more. <laughs> so I signed up for the for the bike ride again the next year. Wow. Um, three, about a week before the bike ride, I went in for emergency surgery. Whoa. So I did not end up um, completing the bike ride. I forget completing. I didn't even start the bike ride. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, wow. And then, and then kind of like a uh, thank you on the one year anniversary from that surgery, I... Um, I rode from my house to the hospital to say thank you to the hospital staff that helped me during the surgery. Wow, which was how many miles there? Um, about 30. Oh my god. About 30 miles there and back, give or take. I ended up pushing a little bit further. I like went around a little bit to kind of coincide with the overall number of surgeries I've had. Yeah, like kind of do one mile for each surgery. Well, and how many surgeries yeah, so have you had? 
uh, around quite a, few. <laughs> quite a few wow oh my gosh so now i know that i did mention the mantra is there anything else that you'd like to add about how um you know it's what you do with what you have that makes a difference um I think really there's a lesson to be learned from this. And, you know, within within the specifically the rare disease community is, you know, you could you could look to to your situation and and um be down in your luck about it, you know, like be just all upset about it. Mm -hmm. Or you could be like uh, you know like these incredible individuals who I've mentioned and and push past your limits, just even a drop, realize that there is some sort of purpose for why you have what you have and what the lesson that you could come up with it. Now, each individual, it, it, it's pretty, you know, mighty of me and, and I really shouldn't be saying this, but like, you know, oh yeah, just do it, do your best. It doesn't that 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 doesn't work for me. Um, I think each individual person um, that's impacted by by a condition, mm -hmm. and I mean any condition, not specifically a rare condition, and not necessarily something that's lifelong, will have at some point in their on that journey, they'll be impacted by the why me question. Yes. And I feel that that goes across every, the scope of humanity. doesn't matter where the geographic, demographic, psychographic, socioeconomics, it doesn't matter. Everybody will ask that why me question, you know, race, religion, ethnicity. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it's, if you, uh, you know, you're left with, each, each person, you're left with that choice. Do I say, okay, I've had X number of surgeries. I did my thing, you know, I, I'm good. I'm checking out now. Mm -hmm. Or do you say, okay, I did, uh, I had X number of surgeries. So I had the worst life could throw at me. Wow. Right. So now I'll do the bike drive. Now I will drive to Maryland to talk to a random organization with no potential for any help whatsoever right with no wow. like i had no i had no um i've been going with a preconceived notion that they were going to help me out one way or right. the other i didn't know that it would turn into a job wow. um and ultimately put me on this path um i, I think that that's a very important message for mm -hmm. for every person yeah you know that question that you asked that very important question of the moms who have a child with a with a rare condition, how that uh, what differentiates them between what differentiates between them and the doctors. Mm -hmm. So understanding that they are that they are the potential of the lifeblood for the next person. Yeah. Um, is something that I think is a very big takeaway. Wow, I'm so in awe of you, like, like you and your entire story. Like everything just led to something else. Like in this yeah. entire episode which is so cool to see. Now, if you could say, I know that people, you know, with different diseases or anything, people say, somebody saved my life. If you could say one person saved my life, who would that be? There's, there's, a, there's an author, Roald Dahl. He, he wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, 
Matilda. I'm trying to think of books slash movies that people would know. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, nobody reads anymore. It's really <laughs> sad. Uh, they're, they're all listening to audiobooks and podcasts. Literally, yeah. Um, so he he lived in he's he's British, and when his son was 11 years old, his son was diagnosed with hydrocephalus. And at the time, there was a treatment that was available for for individuals impacted by that condition. That, you know, diagnosed with that condition. Uh -huh. um, it's a it's a um, it's a device that gets implanted into the head. But the way it was produced up until that point, there was a high rate of infection and a high rate of malfunction. Okay. And when his son was diagnosed, he went to the neurosurgeon and he said, is there anything we could do to make it a little bit better? Like, show me the device. Let's see what we could. Mm -hmm. They ended up putting the one that was, you know, previously around. They ended up putting that for his son, but he created a device that had lower infection rate and lower um, malfunction rate. Okay. He created it together with a toy manufacturer. This also goes back to, um, you know, using your experiences and using your life and, and turning it into your life's work. This toy manufacturer also had a boy who had hydrocephalus. Wow. Um, so the three of them, the two, the, both the toy manufacturer yeah. and, the, and the author, were both, both their kids were patients of this, other do of this doctor. Wow. Um, they created this device. The device was widely in use until 1986. Mm -hmm. um, in early 1980s, another individual, actually a mechanical engineer, uh, perfected the device, mm -hmm. um, became the gold standard. Um, but the first device I ever had at a very young age of a day old was the device that was invented by a children's book writer. No way. So, uh, so yeah, I guess you could say that if I had to give credit to one particular individual, um, I would say it's him. Did you uh, make sure you have his book? I do. I have all his books. Um, I have all I'm literally books, like, so this entire I've, episode, I've I'm, just, I'm just like, so like, whoa, like, I don't even know what to say. Like, I'm just like, like literally speechless. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I thank you for that. But I also think that other people's stories are mm -hmm. as equally as, um, inspiring, but more importantly, as important to hear. Yeah. Um, you know, you asked me about the one person that, that I would credit for saving my life. I'd say there's one other person mm -hmm. um, who I met completely by accident. Really? Yeah. So she is an Irish woman. Her name's Caroline Casey. Mm -hmm. in, um, in 2010, I think it was 2010, she gave a TED talk where she spoke about her trip on the back of an elephant through India. 
Okay. And she kind of gives the 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 backstory behind it and how she why she started her journey and how her journey evolved and all that. Okay. But one of the 